Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Welcome to Work It, the podcast all about entrepreneurship, hosted by me, journalist Angelica Malin, in collaboration with WorkLife. In season two of Work It, I'm chatting to some of the most inspiring entrepreneurs in the UK, from e-commerce wizards to retail experts, all about their secret recipe for success. If you don't already know, WorkLife has eight amazing co-working spaces across the UK, which provide a unique workspace experience designed around you and your team's happiness. They also have delicious free snacks, which I can personally vouch for. Don't forget to follow at work.life to find out more about WorkLife spaces and book in a free trial day at work.life. On this week's episode, I'm chatting to James Gold, founder of Skinny Dip London, and David Kosky, founder of WorkLife, all about how to build a brand identity. I love chatting to the guys about how they built their businesses, and I hope this episode is useful to you. For season two of Work It, and we are joined today by the fantastic David Kosky, founder of Work Life, and James Gold, co-founder of Skinny Dip. Hi, guys. Hello. hello. Thank Thanks you for, for coming. Thanks for having us. You've actually coordinated today. Nice, like, yeah, ensemble. We well, as you know, we are very close friends, so we called each other up last night to uh, find out what each of us was wearing. <laughs> to plan ahead. Yeah. We did. We okay, did. well, you've nailed it. Thank, Thank you. So you for, for those, that, uh, those that don't know about your business, um, businesses, please can you tell us a little bit about Work Life and Skinny Dip? Go on, James, why don't you start? Thank you, David. Um, so Skinny Dip was set up in 2011 by myself, my brother, and my best friend, which hurts David a little bit hearing. <laughs> Another friend. Yeah. Another best friend. <laughs> yeah. um, the idea was to create a fashion lifestyle brand. We spotted a gap in the market, and that niche initially were phone cases. But right from the early stages, wanted to build something, a brand that was more lifestyle-based. And um, over the last seven years, have grown very organically and now do a range of all types of fashion accessories from phone cases to T-shirts to bags to sunglasses and sell through our own stores, wholesale partners, concessions and online. Just everywhere, basically. Just you, taking over the world. Not yet. Trying to. <laughs> and David, how about you? How did work life come about? So uh, we set work life up in 2015 um, with myself and my business partner, Elliot Gold. The um, Now, today we've got nine locations across London and the UK. We're probably one of the fastest growing challenger co-working brands. And our whole our whole goal was really to create a, a, a workspace or a place where people can you know be happy and productive at work. Because I think that is what is so important and it's probably what Elliot and I both lacked from our previous working lives. Yeah. Hence, hence work life. 
Hence work life. Got it. So for those who are thinking about launching their own businesses and are really at the early stages, what did your journey look like from having an idea to actually putting something into action, taking that idea into reality? What did that journey look like? I think mine was a little bit different from David's because I started Skinny Dip at 23. Uh, my business partner was 22 and my brother was 21. And we started very kind of um, out of the box. We didn't build a business plan. We didn't spend you know, six, nine months thinking about how to start a business, we literally just started it with no experience. And I think that naivety was to our biggest advantage because we weren't scared of failure. Mm. And it was also a huge challenge because we didn't know what we were getting ourselves into, which also is an advantage because I think a lot of people are held back of starting a business due to the fear. You know, I'm scared that it's going to fail. I'm scared that people are going to judge me for starting something and not succeeding. And um, we went into it very green and very naive with a view of let's start something. And we didn't even call it a business. It was three of us in a dilapidated office in Wembley with three desks <laughs> and three computers. And we had fun working with each other. And we thought we spotted a gap in the market. And we thought we'd give it six months. And if it worked, brilliant. And if it didn't, we'd all go and get proper jobs and Eight years later, fortunately, we're still here. That's amazing. I suppose that really takes the pressure off, doesn't it? If you're not trying at the start to kind of go global, but you just start. Yeah, I also think age has a huge factor. I think when you get past 30, which myself and David now are, there's a lot more pressure on you. You have a lot more responsibilities. You have a lot more bills. When you're 23 years old and you're living at home with your parents (laughs) and you've got no bills and no um, expenditure... Mm. You can take a few more risks. And I actually think probably one of the best times to start a business is in your early 20s when you don't have that life pressure on your shoulders Mm. as much as you do when you get older. So I think starting a business younger, you have that fearless element because you're, I feel, more comfortable at failing. Because if you do, you can dust yourself up and do something else. Yeah. David, do you agree with that? Uh, Definitely. I think it helps. I think for me, the biggest thing was, you know, I found I was lucky that Elliot and I found each other early in our journey I think having a business partner and doing it with someone I think is absolutely key so I I mean when we set work life up I was 27 and I'd left sort of uh, much to my fam, my parents well concern well I left you know a really good job as like in finance and I think I, I had it got to the point where I knew I probably same as James I knew that what you know what, what James said about 30 I knew once I passed that sort of threshold like I was going to have to commit to this as a career and I still felt at 27 I was had three years under 30 yeah. to make something happen and um our, our business was slightly different so our market has been around for you know there's been service offices for example mm. around for 20 30 years so we knew we weren't we, you know we weren't inventing the wheel or something particularly new but what we saw was an opportunity to put our own take on it we saw in our market so the world of work was changing what people were expecting from work was changing and in our market at the time we just saw a lot of the operators were going very big and very impersonal mm. and in a, in a market where we thought everything was going hyper local you know the, the Starbucks versus the barista fundamentally they're serving coffee but you know the barista's made with a bit more love you actually get to know the barista it's a bit more of a personal service we saw the opportunity to really deliver a really personal brand. Mm. Uh, and we understood, I think, from a really you know, early stage of business that it was all about team and how does a small business get the most out of their team, keep them happy, mm. um, keep them productive. And the office is such a big part of, you know, what, of, of how businesses can do that these days. And I think that's where 
we saw the opportunity. But uh, so- yeah, absolutely. And my experience working here, we're based out of Work Life Clerkenwell and we're just a small team of two. Yeah. But I felt like we've had so many people around us the last few months and there's more people to go to and I pull random people from other companies into our meetings and actually that sense of community I really think has improved our work life experience. That is d- great to hear. <laughs> I'll be leaving you a comment yeah, on your thank website. Thank you very much. Yeah. He prefers Google reviews. <laughs> yeah, you, can, you can leave a Google review okay. as well. well. I will do that yeah. today afterwards. What kind of questions do you think you should be asking yourself before launching a business? I think that it's very important to enjoy what you do. I'm like a firm advocate that if you're happy doing something, you should be good at it. And if you're good at it, hopefully you'll be successful. Um, so for me, kind of it all starts with, are you doing something that will make you feel happy every single day? And I think the litmus test to that is, do you go to bed on Sunday night thinking, oh, I've got work yeah. the following morning? Or do you go to bed thinking, actually, I'm quite happy to get in and get started? You know, when I go on holiday, um, I, after a few days, I'm so restless and looking forward to get back in the office, not because I have to, but because I want to, you know, on a weekend going around London and walking into our shops, the feeling of that is amazing. So I think it all starts with me. When it's busy. <laughs> yeah, when it's not busy, not yeah. as happy. Um, but I think it all stems from happiness. Um, mm. And are you doing something, whether it's a product-based business or a service-based business that you're going to enjoy doing? And I think that's kind of, for me, the the most important and probably one of the only questions you need to ask yourself before going in and starting something. Mm. And also, can you sustain your enthusiasm for it? Is it something that you think you can be excited about for a number of years? Exactly. I think I always, um, whenever anyone asks me, you know, the challenges and the problems, and of course, there's more than I could possibly recount. But I would say, hand on heart, I don't think I've worked a day in my life since starting Skinny Dip because I love what I do mm. um, and I really, really enjoy it. And the idea of building something and seeing things develop, it's almost like when you're a kid and you're playing like a computer game and you can kind of go up different levels. And in a way, that's kind of how I look at business in that I go in every single day motivated to try and make something happen mm. and develop it and see something which started that nobody had ever heard of that was kind of just a pipe dream and an idea hopefully get bigger and bigger and bigger yeah do, do, do you think it's pro do you think you need to be passionate about the product or is it actually just about being in business because i found a lot of people they they try and find something they're very passionate about mm. in terms of a product or a sector or something when i found for me and it's actually been you know actually being in business hustling you know yeah. that's what i enjoy and it could i could apply that to a number of to you know a number of different things i think it's both i think in the early stages it was more about working with my two partners my brother and best mate and having it kills him every time I say that uh, second best mate um, Knife is back. he can have you no, David's second <laughs> best mate um, I think in the early stages it was just going into I call it an office but we never brought any customers there and working with people that I got along with and laughed and joked and had fun with all day and I think over time started to fall in love with the products a little bit more. I mean, my business is very different from David's in that mine is an 18 to 25-year-old female and I'm a 32-year-old man. you don't understand them. (laughs) (laughs) But you do. You end up kind of picking it up and understanding your customer and your marketplace and you end up kind of, you know, I go on sign-off meetings now and see handbags and I get excited by handbags that (laughs) the designers show. None that I would obviously wear myself, but I get excited by the product that we're offering. You know, we just did a Disney range and when I saw some of the products that came out, I was so excited to see them in the shop. So um, I think it's both, mm. in my opinion. Because I was going to ask you about that. Is 
what has the process been like by having a, de- a demographic that is very different to you and your co-founders? Like, have you found it easy to get in the mindset of your audience? I think that having a really fantastic team of people, my business is more than just myself and my two business partners. You know, we have in our head office 70 people now and the vast majority of them are female. I think 90, over 90% of our workforce are female. And I would say out of that 90%, maybe 85 of them are within the 18 to 25 year old demographic. So having a really, really fantastic kind of staff who we, we design everything, we decide everything collaboratively. So when it comes to a sign off meeting and there's a product range, myself, Lewis and Richard, my partners could look at it and say, actually, we're not sure about it. And all the girls in the office will say, we love it. We love it. We love it. We have to have it. And who are we to decide over them that mm. a product is right or wrong? So I think having faith and having trust in the staff that we've taken on and the team that we've built mm. um, has allowed us to kind of go into that mindset of the 18 to 25 year old and realize that there's other people in terms of our design and our marketing who understand the customer because they are the customer so much better that we take their opinion um, a lot more seriously than we would take my own. Yeah. I suppose similarly for you, David, like it's not like you started as a freelancer. You weren't like a freelance illustrator looking for a place to work. You weren't exactly your core demographic before you launched work life, but you still managed to get into the head of the kind of person who would work here. Definitely. Well, I think our business is all about people, right? It spans, you know, it's, it spans sector and experience. And fundamentally, you know, we all spend a huge amount of time in the office. Mm. And Elliot and I both came from, I was, you know, more drab corporate office environments. And I think we could empathize with, you know, this is the way that we want to work. We're going to spend a lot of time at work and people want to enjoy it. Uh, and so it's probably, it was easy for us to understand, I suppose that, you know, as a, just a simple principle, people want an environment they're comfortable in. Uh, and we sort of built an environment that we wanted that we understand, understood that other people um, would need. I suppose for us, as things have evolved, uh, the really, you know, for us is learning how important team is, because I think for, for us as a business, but also for our members, you know, fundamentally, if you're a business owner, it used to be, you know, you care when it came to an office, it was a very transactional thing. And it was, you know, where can I find the pri- best price and the location? And now the big thing that all these guys think about price and location is key, but it's actually what's going to make my team happy. Mm. And there's a reason these guys do it. They want their teams to be happy because they, it means they're more productive, less sick days. There's all very rational reasons why they want to. And then you've got the team who they want, you know, as a small business, they're, uh, you know, you look at what Google does, what Facebook does there, you know, in terms of their offices, and they don't like just spending money for the sake of it. And skinny dip. And skinny dip, obviously. <laughs> uh, a great example. But yeah, you know, it's all about experience. I think the, today, what we've noticed is in work, there's been sort of an attitudinal shift, right? Work has become, it used to just be about a salary, and, and, and I don't think it's just about that anymore. It's now mm-hmm. about experience, and it's almost like a consumer, it's like a, you know, it's consumer driven where you're working. Mm-hmm. So, but but fundamentally, I suppose, an answer to your question, yeah, we could empathise because we spent lots of time in offices and some we enjoyed, some different. And Yeah. Yeah, and no, I definitely agree with that. If you look at our office and we, you know, have our own, um, we don't, we're not part of work life, but we have our own kind of building. Spiritually, you are. Emotionally. Emotionally investing in it as yeah. well and want it to do well. But having that company culture where people walk into our office and we have a skinny dip pick mix in reception and, um, you know, the skinny dip library where people can kind of rent different books about different causes that are related to kind of our hate sucks, charitable kind of um, arm of skinny dip. 
having that, you know, wine time on a Friday where a bell rings and everyone can have a glass of wine and a beer by their desks. I think company culture and having a work environment where people feel happy mm. and they want to stay definitely makes the workforce a lot more productive, a lot more efficient and I think has been integral for our growth in that people want to be in the office. I think everything David is doing in work life is then replicated, um, not just by what we're doing, but as he said, Google and Facebook and clearly makes a difference. On the subject of, of teams, how did yeah. you find the right people to hire? How did you know that they were going to add value to your company? So it's a, it's a good one. And I think, you know, we are always learning about, you know, how to hire the right people. But for us, the key thing was, you know, the, I suppose, hiring the core, in line with our core beliefs. So there had to be a, we want, you know, they had to be the, you know, believe in the same things. And we've obviously got those core values as a business. And that was the driving thing, the driving point. So really finding people that ticked all of those boxes, you know, um, I think if you if you hire around your core values, and that's why it's really important, mm. I suppose, for any business. Once you've got your, you know, once you've done, you pass your business plan, really to actually understand what your core values are. Because if you hire people that actually fit to those, I don't think you'll ever go wrong. And then, uh, and then, obviously, uh, the key thing for any small businesses, right, is how how do you grow? How do you have a efficient structure? And that's uh, luckily, I've got a business partner who's an ex management consultant, and so we've created a structure that. For us, it was really important giving autonomy to our team. So we didn't want to micromanage even from the, you know, the early stages. We wanted to get people in that we could actually trust, like what James was saying. Delegates. And I, oh yeah. And, and they had to have the, um, you know, they, we wanted them to take the responsibility and to have, you know, care as much about it as we do. Mm-hmm. So hiring, so hiring core values and, um, and I suppose as a business, especially as an owner of a business, being comfortable to let your team have autonomy and responsibility over making decisions, I think is key. Mm. I went to a conference recently in California and there was a guy who gave a presentation and he said, hire for fit and train for skill, which I think is quite interesting. He said, you can't do it the other way around. You can't train yeah. someone to fit. So important. Yeah, if you agreed. can get the fit right. And yeah. that's the, sorry, to just say company culture is key. You've got to all be swimming in the same direction. So I completely agree with that. Yeah, everything David said, I agree, and what we look for when we hire anyone. But I think the the main thing is, are they passionate and enthusiastic? Do they want to come and work for the brand? You know, do they go above and beyond in the interview where you're talking to them that you think to yourself, actually, I really want to have this person within my team? And then everything else David said about them being able to not micromanage them, that they, um, you know, believe the same values that you stand for is all kind of integral. But I agree with what you said. You know, you can teach people to be good at their jobs. Mm. You can't fake enthusiasm and passion and wanting to be there. So I think that's the key thing we look for when mm. we're taking people on. That's about where, just to say, I mean, early, because obviously this is about setting your business up. I think the one thing is, and James, you will obviously agree because I've seen how hard you've worked, but I mean, setting up a business, and especially the early days, I mean, it's hard graft and you've got to have people that are really, and it all comes from passion around the business, but you know, have got the right mentality to, to work hard and go above and beyond because we, you know, we don't want people that are just, uh, where, you know, and just nine to fivers in their mindset. Mm. Obviously, we'd love for everyone to, you know, we're not asking people to stay late, but if they have to, because stuff needs to get done, those are the sort of people you want. Mm-hmm. I think for in, in a new business, that is really, really key. I also think as well, you've got to, as a business owner, set the example. You know, when we go back to the early days when we first started and we didn't take any employees in for the first two years, it was just me and my two partners. 
we did everything. We did all the sales. We did all the finances. When the products came, we unloaded the trucks. We stuck on carter labels. We didn't just do the glamorous, you know, mm. exciting jobs. We did the down and dirty. No one really wants to do them jobs. So when you start taking people on, you know how, because we've done every aspect of the business from the ground up, you know how to do their job. Hopefully, they're able to do it significantly better than you can, which fortunately, we've got people that can. But I think that, you know, if you're the sort of business owner that is expecting other people to do the work for you, I don't think, I think it's going to be very hard to succeed. Mm. Whereas I think if you're the sort of business owner that will roll up their sleeves, get stuck in, when you start taking people on, hopefully your employees respect you as your employer and they know how hard you work and how much the business means to you and they want to give more um, back to that. So I think that's really important. You know, me, Lewis and Richard, who I run Skinny Dip with, we work almost harder today than we did eight years ago when we had no staff members. And I think it's about just making sure you never step your foot off the gas, that you've got that vision that you want to get to, and you're the one that's driving it forward because you know people look up to you as a business owner. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think in the minute they think that you're not really interested, why should they be? Yeah, they lose their, their motivation exactly. as well. In terms of building brand identity and brand voice, um, how organic was the process of that for you guys? Did you know exactly what the brand sounded like for the start? Uh, it's hard to, I'll start with this one. For us, yes, we knew it was like a friendly, it, we knew it was friendly, it was approachable, it was welcoming. It was all the sort of, I suppose, what we were trying to deliver, the experience in our space. So we, we knew we were, uh, we were all of those things I just said. And I think the, um, but we recognize in our market, which is particular, and I think this is key, right? In anyone setting a business up, you know, there's lots of people, lots of competitors in our market. And fundamentally, if you use the coffee analogy again, you know, fundamentally, we're all serving coffee. The experience is different and the brand is different. I think brand, we recognize brand is really key in our market. Mm. And, uh, and so we've worked hard to sort of develop the brand and make it something which is slightly different to what other people are doing. Uh, and did you do all of that internally or did you ever hire like an agency or a company to do that for you? Uh, no, we hired. Well, so when we set the business up, we did an initial like, so anyone setting a business up, I think it's really important they get their branding done by someone professionally and bring it all together. Undoubtedly, they're going to change because I'm sure you've changed your logo and branding a bit since the very beginning. We've done it and it's, it's sort of evolved. But yeah, we got an external agency to do it. We fed in with them. We really got down to, you know, what are the, the values of the business, how that's going to be reflected in the brand and then uh, and it's been an evolving piece but I think for anyone setting a business up once you've you know you're down the point where you've got your products and you've got your market I think the actual branding piece is key because in today's market where there's lots of options in most different sectors branding is what sets you about and I think the one thing we realize is we uh, we don't want our brand to appeal to everyone mm. you can't be you can't appeal to everyone so like in James's business they obviously have their brand position to appeal to their target audience mm-hmm. and I think it's the same for us so you can't be something for everyone and in such a competitive market now with co-working spaces Definitely. that brand voice is so important because it's what differentiates one from the other and who goes where I suppose exactly and you like I said you know your brand will not appeal to everyone so we, we know that but you're you just want your brand to uh, appeal to the people that you're trying to attract mm, so and, knowing, and resonate knowing with. your demographic definitely and that's one of the things when anyone does branding a piece of work and if anyone's send, setting up a business you know it's like who's your target audience and really understanding what appeals to them yeah how about um the branding for skinny dip so we knew from day one that we wanted to build a fashion lifestyle brand but we didn't really know what that meant 
there were certain values and even calling the business skinny dip you know we wanted to have a fun brand we wanted to not take ourselves too seriously we were young we wanted to be cheeky and those kind of values have gone the whole way through Mm. but the brands evolved over time and I think to what similar to what David said there is so much information that is readily accessible in today's market you pick up your phone and you have the world at your fingertips that what makes you different from somebody else and what was really important from the early stages for me and my partners was to build a brand that we could be proud of that stood not just for the products that we offered but the values that we stood for Mm. so as the brand has evolved over the last few years and we've opened up more stores and more concessions it's you know there's a huge huge focus we've got a team of 10 um, in our office are just on kind of branding and marketing we treat skinny dip as if she was a real person we talk about her as what does she like? What does she dislike? What values does she stand for? Who would she want to collaborate with? Who wouldn't she want to collaborate with? Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of our customer service, it's not Jane at customer service that's replying to the customers. It's Skinny Dip replying to the customers on our social media. It's Skinny Dip tone of voice. So everything we do is geared towards creating something authentic and genuine because I don't think that you know, there's a lot of brands out there that promise a lot um, and I feel that they say all this stuff designed to appeal to the customers. I think to be truly authentic, you have to have values and you have to stand for certain principles and then keep to them. And I think that's something I'm particularly proud of with Skinny Dip, how it's evolved over the last few years, that she is quite clearly defined as you know a, a brand that has certain values that are really important to her. Um, that she raises awareness for certain causes. Um, she raises money for various different charities. And she does it not because um, she has to, but because the sort of personality Skinny Dip is as a brand, that's what she wants to do. So I think it's integral to the success of our business, the mm. branding. I really love the idea of bringing her to life, like making her a, a mm. physical person in your mind. I think that's really can help you figure out what your brand's about. Well, every single product we design, the designers have a list of like five questions and it's, would she buy it? Would she like that colorway? Where she seen it before? And when we say she, it's skinny dip. Yeah. So we genuinely treat her in every single decision we make as if she's a real life person. Yeah. And I think it, it, when you take a step back, she's not. She's mm. a business. Mm. Um, but when you actually treat something that is intangible as a tangible thing, mm. it makes things a lot more focused in what you do. So, you know, everything we do is not geared towards what I like or my partners like or the team like is what the skinny dip like and I think that's what hopefully you know will continue to make the brand very very strong and differentiate ourselves between our competitors yeah even if it's not something that customers know what your core values are like on face value the fact that you know them allows you to feed them into the business as well yeah I I think that it's you know we look at the two most important things in our business and there's lots of important things but the two kind of star things in what we focus on is number one product how can we make the most amazing, desirable, exciting product that people want to go out and use and you know, put on their social media and haven't seen before from any of our competitors? And then the second equally as strong element of the business is a brand. Mm. How can we make Skinny Dip as distinctive and as exciting and as impactful as possible? Because I also think there's an element of having social responsibility. You know, We have over a million people on our mailing list. We have a huge social media following, which is all organic and very authentic. I think that if you have that amount of people that follow you, which we're fortunate enough that we do, we want to be able to do more than just look at the handbag, look at these pair of sunglasses, look at this T-shirt. It's This is what Skinny Dip stands for. So, you know, we did our first ever float in Pride last year, which was amazing working with Stonewall. And it was really impactful because how many people came out to walk alongside our float and genuine Skinny Dip fans 
it made us feel that what we were doing was more than just about selling product, which I think is a really special thing if mm. you're fortunate enough to get that. It's a brand movement, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, that strong brand identity. On social, how important has social media been for both of your businesses? And specifically, which channels have you kind of focused on? Well, it's probably more important, I imagine, just given James's prod, the, well, the business and his demographics. Then, then ask, do you want to get changed? Yeah, I mean, I think Instagram for us has been integral to our success. I think nowadays everything is a lot more visual. People want to see things. They want to see imagery potentially more than words. And I think what we've been able to do with Instagram and being on it from the very early days is build up a community of followers that were able to reach people all over the world. And if you go back 10 years ago or, you know, even seven or eight years ago before Instagram existed, if you wanted to do a marketing pay, uh, campaign and reach people in Japan and Brazil and America, you'd be, you'd be looking at spending millions of pounds, which for small businesses, and mm. I classify ourselves as a small business, we don't have that budget available. But if you're able to produce engaging, exciting content that people want to follow you, you're able to reach a lot more people mm. in a very organic, authentic way. So I think you know we wouldn't be the brand that we are without Instagram. Mm. Um, it's been a huge kind of driver to our growth. Yeah. And do you have a team that works on your Instagram now? Yeah. Fully dedicated team in terms of social, in terms of influencer outreach, in terms of events. Um, you know, we have a, you know, more, I think we have three or four people that are just fully dedicated to kind of social. Mm. David, what have you found the best ways for customer acquisition for you guys has been? Uh, so for us has been, <laughs> Well, two, two ways. So one of our strats of fun, you know, all of our spaces and the experience we provide is delivered out of physical, you know, real estate. Um, sounds very corporate and commercial, but you know, it's pro- we have to, we take space places, you know, in different locations. For us, we found two, the two best ways. The first is actually by being ground floor. So when we set the business up, and even in a competitive market, we said we realized that for us to grow the business, we was going to have to have an interesting solution to landlords who are the guys that own the property. So we figured out a very landlord-friendly solution, which made work life very attractive for them to bring us into their buildings. So I think for anyone, even in a competitive market, you can give yourself a really nice strategic edge and one of those things one of those solutions were that we would animate ground floors for landlords so what we recognize you know more and more buildings bigger buildings were letting slower and the ground floor which is you know typically the window shop into a building for a, for a landlord who wants to fill their buildings up were empty and hard to let uh, and so the, the so we decided to take the ground floor we knew it would work from a landlord's perspective but the benefit from us is that we were creating almost like a quasi-retail brand in that we were visible from the ground floor so we've found that actually probably 50% of our members historically have come from walking past and seeing us, mm, which wow. is why work life is now is on the ground floor versus historically you find serviced offices or co-working spaces on the seventh floor. So that has been really interesting and worked really, really well. And then the second thing which we're consistently improving for us is referrals, right? You talk about a brand movement. We're the, we're lucky enough to build some really personal relationships with all of the people, all of our members, uh, and for us, you know, those are rather than worrying about bringing loads of new acquisition, you know, consistent acquisition. For us, it's actually about right: how do we retain our existing members, mm. and most importantly, how, when they're fans of the business, we do lots of surveys and we really understand who you know who who's happy with us, etc. Is actually encouraging those people to refer. 
because if that is you know the always the best way in any business mm. uh is you know to get people to refer you and that may be in skinny dip's case look you know look at my phone case how amazing is this She's, they've got 10 friends and you know they go all go to skinny dip and buy the phone case so they want to be part of it and for us it's you know if you think about like linkedin all of our members you know they've all know 20 30 entrepreneurs ceos i mean look at me and james and our group of friends all doing doing different things uh and actually getting our members to become fans and endorsing us and, mm. and referring people in. So we've we've launched a big referral program where we incentivize our members only if they're comfortable and if they're fans of the business they're going to do it, but to refer people to work life that they think will be a good fit. It's also just a great authentic way of building your business because you're only going to refer if you're genuinely happy. So you're getting all these people that love the brand and want more people to come in. Definitely. And look for us, and I, you know, we reckon, we understand that we're never going to win necessarily on Google, you know, online because it's a very competitive market, and we don't really want to be reliant on those traditional streams mm. of getting you know new members in and the best way is, is referrals and obviously walk buys has been a really interesting very specific to our market obviously but it's been a really interesting i suppose the interest it's a good example of a strategic angle you can take to generate leads yeah efficiently. on finally on the kind of nitty-gritty side of actual funding and finances yeah. this is like i find in our events is the topic that comes up the most yeah. is financially getting something off the ground um, I know you both had different routes with the finances so maybe you could just tell us a little bit about how you how you funded the business at the start come on David off uh, to you okay uh, well James is far more impressive I don't think they've raised any money which is amazing uh, but now ours was slightly different because it, obviously there's a cost to delivering a space we knew we had to deli- uh, we had to raise an initial angel round so we took some money from some investors at the time we and I can give you a couple of tips but we did a 50% equity 50% debt because we knew our business is cash generative so a lot of startup struggle I suppose may not be able to do it because they can't service debt but ours we could because there was cash flow we go and pay debt um and what we've done since is we've actually worked because of our approach we managed to be very cash efficient in our rollout so we've worked with landlords who have given who have funded some of our fit outs mm. and that's meant that our sort of our capital requirement has been reduced but the um so so we've really uh, i think in the, you have two options right you can either go and raise big money or you can go and you give up a chunk of equity or you can go and Try and uh, do it as efficiently as possible, retain as much equity as possible, mm. and then if you need to raise big, do it at a later stage. And we've done the second route. Mm. I think the the one the tip that I would say for anyone is raising money is number one, have a very good so from at really early stage people have a really good pitch deck and have very good financial numbers. It's worth pay. I, mean, I was lucky with Elliot because he's like an ex management consultant, so he can build spreadsheets and models in his in his sleep uh, and I'm like the, the antithesis of that so I can't mm. do that uh, get really good financials really good pitch deck I think that sets you apart in the beginning I think most people go to investors with a not a clear business plan and poor financials and I think investors just want to see that's such a big starting point you know is this person financial literate do they think logically mm. um, and then the second thing was uh, one of the tips that we had, had took early on is deciding on equity 
I guess it was a bit of a different journey to you, James, but a lot of big businesses go and raise equity. And I think the challenge they have is actually to confer, you know, agreeing with an investor <coughs> what valuation to put onto a business. And we've never wanted to do that. So our strategy has always been if we're having to raise equity, we don't agree, we don't do it on a valuation, we do it on a discount to the next round. And that mm. means it saves you a lot of time arguing about valuation. Um, and if you have to, to raise equity, it allows you to do it quickly. Mm. And I think the problem that people get is, you know, if, if you're talking about equity, investors want to push you down. The, the, the owners of the business want it to be up at a certain level to set the bar. And you spend a lot of time um, wasting, you know, a lot of time wasted on raising money. And it can be very, very time consuming. Yeah. Getting but, ready for it all. Yeah. But there are great things like Cedars now and all mm. these great crowd, you know, crowdfunding platforms, mm. that, which are great. So I don't think there's any one size fits all. I suppose it's also about the scope of the business you're trying to create. You mm-hmm. needed the capital because the physical spaces, they need to have lovely fit outs. It's different to starting something like James's company where you start it not having that much expectation growing organically. Exactly. I mean, we um, have never raised outside money. We've never taken external investment. We started pretty much in a bedroom. And um, I remember I did our finances the first month. We, um, I think our first month expenditure was under 800 quid. Mm. Um, so we didn't spend any money. We were living at home. We weren't taking any salaries. Um, when we first started, we were a wholesale business. So we would buy products for X, try and sell them for Y and retain the profit, which was Z. And um, I remember we made a list of every retailer in the country and called everyone up and got rejected by everyone. And then eventually we managed to get a meeting with River Island and we went in there and showed these sketches, which my business partner had kind of drawn up and they were horrible. But the idea was a phone case could be a fashion accessory. You could be the first to sell it in your stores. None of your competitors are selling this product and your customer has a phone. And we walked out of there. I think I think it was about $50,000 order. And we were very, very fortunate at that time that between friends and family, they managed to loan us some money mm. in order to get the order produced. Mm. We were paid seven days after we delivered it. Um, and then we rolled the profit back into order number two. And then order number three, we had the profit from order number one and two. And in a very short period of time, and from being very conservative, we managed to be quite kind of self-sufficient. And, uh, you know, today we, you know, have been very fortunate that all the uh, the profit that we've made over the last few years has always been rolled back into the company to allow us to continue to grow. So we've never taken external money. But, um, mm. you know, we were fortunate if our family and our friends wouldn't have believed in us in the early days. Mm. There was no opportunity to get the business off the ground. I think banks are now um, a lot more willing to speak to small businesses. But when we started in, you know, 2010, two years after the worst ever crash, banks weren't as willing to offer any loans or any kind of financing options to small businesses, which they are a lot more today. Yeah. So, you know, that's kind of our journey. And we've done it again in a very kind of non-authentic way, uh, not non-authentic, but in a very kind of non-orthodox, that's the word I'm looking for, way where we just kept rolling the dice Mm -hmm. and putting back the profits and Placing it on next orders, but for a lot of businesses, I suppose that's not going to—it's—it's not the the route that a lot of businesses will have to take. And mm. I think the one good bit of advice is probably if they're going to raise equity or going to raise some money at the beginning, there's a lot of good schemes like EIS, SEIS, which are all tax efficient mm. schemes that encourage investors to give you money and make it tax efficient for them. There's also so. a lot of. Um, private equity companies have startup hubs now where you can go and you can raise you know under half a million pounds for being part of their kind of startup hub there's also competitions like i know virgin 
do a huge amount to support young businesses and have prizes for different kind of companies. So I would encourage any young, young business to do the research um, and you'll find there's a variety of different financing options. I also think there's an element of starting small and scaling up mm-hmm. rather than going for the jackpot on day one, because why do you want to have all that risk on your shoulders? You yeah. know, start small, proof of concept, make sure that it works and then roll it out and scale it up. But I don't think you need to, you know, reach for the sky on day one. Mm, it definitely takes take the time. pressure off. Well, I think what you said is really interesting. I mean, I remember sitting, uh, listening to a talk where a guy set up a free, freelancer.com, this pl- a big, uh, big platform. And I, uh, and he told a story, maybe, you know, did really well out of it. And, and his previous business, and I really, I completely agree with what he said, was his previous business, well, he came up with an idea. And lots of people, I mean, this is basically like 101, but we're talking about setting a business up. It's probably a good, a good one to say. But the, uh, a lot of people spend a lot of investment and time and developing a product and like you said they haven't got the proof of concept concept yet they haven't actually sold one they've got no one committing to buying one mm-hmm. and people excited it's great in their head because they've done and they think they've done these market research but there's no better than market research than someone willing to give you some money for it mm. so my suggestion and my wife's my wife's looking at a business now and my suggestion is look go and get some prototypes made and sell it or sell it on get mm. some pre-orders you know with designs but if people are willing to part money with it mm. then you know you've got a product right yeah. and then you can sell it to them and then you can go and say look I've already to, then if you need money at that stage you go and say look I've had 100 orders I've 200 orders yeah it's minimal but I've only spoken to 250 people and 200 people want to buy it I think the key thing is is actually getting proof of concept and you can do that cheaply you mm. know you but getting people to part with their money for a product is the best test there's also yeah. never a perfect time to set up a business ever mm. and a lot of people wait a huge amount of time and they spend years developing and crafting business plans and going to meetings and they spend all this time and effort and a lot of time you know time is money mm. and um it doesn't work mm. and i think that that's why what i always encourage businesses to do and what david kind of said before is go and do it mm. just get it started and, and you'll you can see. talk yourself out of it as well Definitely. if you sit on an idea you can talk it to death you sit on it too long there's always going to be a you're never going to find a perfect idea it doesn't mm. exist there's always going to be problems in it and that's fine like there's no business which is perfect but go with it, try it. And if it works, you know that you're onto something. And if it doesn't, well, you saved yourself a year of time, effort and energy and you move on to something else. So I think that um, my biggest advice to people starting a business is actually go out and start it. Yeah, just do it. Well, fantastic. Lovely positive note to end on. If people would like to find out more about your businesses, where should they go online? So our website is www. which everyone knows, um, skinnydiplondon.com. And then if you go online, you can see all the locations where we're at and follow us at Skinny Dip London. Uh, and work life is work.life. So www.work.life. And obviously you can follow us on Instagram, work.life and Twitter and whatever. Wherever Come join. Is. I highly yeah. recommend it. Thank, <laughs> Thank you so much, much guys. Thank, Thank you, you very much. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. If you've enjoyed this episode, then don't forget to subscribe, rate and review so more people can find the show. And if you're feeling inspired and think of pursuing a creative project of your own, then there's a home for you at Work Life. You can find out more at work.life. A candy store production for work life, hosted by Angelica Malin and produced by Van Connor. T-shirt weather by Poddington Bear appears under Creative Commons 3.0 with podcast recording facilities in partnership with Work Life. Visit work.life for more information. You can find us at candystoreproductions.co.uk. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com.